Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 197 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Edwin May about his research as a parapsychologist. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Physicist Dr. Edwin May is one of the few people who's been able to make a career working full-time in the realm of parapsychology. He is a former head of the government's psychic spying program known as Stargate, but his research into psychic phenomena continued after the project closed. So what has his research found? What are the challenges of doing psychic research? And what are Dr. May's personal views about the phenomena? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin? This will be the first part of a two-part interview with Dr. May, where we look at his research into parapsychology. Back in episode 177, he told us about his career with the Stargate Remote Viewing Project. So you can go back and listen to episode 177 to learn about that. This time, we'll be looking at the research he's done on psychic functioning, both during and after Stargate. These episodes will let us get into the reported mechanics of how psychic phenomena work and what affects psychic functioning. Dr. May also has some unique views on the subject, views that differ from other parapsychologists, and we'll be getting into those. I'm honored to be able to interview Dr. May because a while ago he retired from doing interviews, but a remote viewer in upstate New York named Jimmy James is a fan of Mysterious World, and he knows Dr. May, so he took the initiative to put us in touch, and so I want to thank Jimmy James. Since this is an interview, we won't be doing the usual faith and reason perspectives today. Where can listeners go to hear about the faith and reason perspectives on psychic functioning? Psychic abilities are thought to be weak, natural abilities that are part of human nature. And for more information, listeners may wish to go back and check out episodes like episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena and science. Episodes 102 and 103 on remote viewing and episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult. As we covered in those two episodes, Christian thought and Catholic tradition in particular recognizes a place for weak, natural human abilities like psychic powers are claimed to be. In fact, doctors of the church like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas believed that we do have what today would be called psychic abilities. As a possible aspect of human nature, whether such abilities actually exist is thus a scientific matter for scientists to figure out. So you can check out both past and future episodes to get a sense of what the current scientific evidence says and make up your own mind. 
And what particular topics we'll be hearing about in today's episode? We'll be talking about things like the physics of how an event in the future could have an effect in the present, something that would be key to psychic abilities like precognition. We'll also be discussing the state of the evidence regarding whether psychic functioning exists and whether research is still needed that's oriented towards proving if it exists, or whether research should primarily be oriented towards figuring out how it works. We'll also be talking about an experiment that involves projecting images into people's dreams, like in the movie Inception. We'll be talking about evidence for something like Spider-Man's spidey sense, whether people subconsciously use psychic functioning all the time without realizing it, how much information actually seems to come through psychic channels, the challenges of doing research on this topic, the extent to which it's actually the experimenter rather than the test subject that is being psychic, and the extent to which ESP is or isn't trainable. Excellent. Well, before we get into that interview, which I'm looking forward to, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Molly P., Kazval V., David V., Mardell B., and Felix L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And with no further ado, here's Jimmy's interview with Dr. Edwin May. Dr. Edwin C. May spent the first part of his research career as a physicist doing low-energy experimental nuclear physics. He became interested in doing research into parapsychological phenomena, and in 1976, he joined the U.S. government-sponsored work at SRI International, including what eventually became known as the Defense Department's Stargate program. Under Stargate, he authored or co-authored 300 formerly classified reports to various U.S. government agencies within the military and intelligence communities. Dr. May has managed complex interdisciplinary research projects for the U.S. federal government. He presided over 70% of the $20 million in funding for the program and 85% of the data collection for the government's 22-year involvement in parapsychological research. Currently, Dr. May is executive director of the Laboratories for Fundamental Research, where he continues his parapsychological studies. Welcome to Mysterious World, Dr. May. Well, thank you, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. You have been working professionally in parapsychology for more than 45 years, which is... Oh, thanks for reminding me. I quit. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's rather unusual for a person to be able to make a living as a parapsychologist. A lot of people, you know, work as, as kind of in parapsychology as kind of a side venture, but they have a day job that's something else. But you've actually built a career doing full-time work in the subject. And in that time, you've advocated a number of views that are rather striking, that are not typical of what other people in the field have thought. And so I'd like to explore some of those in our discussion today. Sure. To kind of set up the discussion, uh, if people dig into the literature, you know, I've read a number of your 
scientific papers and things like that. But if people get beyond the kind of basic introductory books and they start looking into the field in more depth, they're going to encounter some terms that are different than the public than what the public is familiar with. For example, two notable terms they'll encounter are anomalous cognition and anomalous perturbation. What are those and what do those terms mean and, and why are they used in preference to some of the more common terms people would know, like ESP? Uh, that's a great question, Jimmy. The, the term ESP, um, first of all, has mechanism built into, into the language. Mm-hmm. A sensory extra, mechanism. Extra, yeah. first, mm-hmm. and it's extra. It's in the sensory mechanism. At the time it was coined, they didn't know the answer to any of those. So I thought, like, to try to come up with a a new name, and I have a funny story associated with it, that describes the observable without mechanism overlay to it. So what happens when you do an ESP experiment? You become aware of something which we don't currently understand. In other words, you have a cognition of something, some experience. We don't know how that works. Hell, we don't even know. I'm looking at this piece of paper. We don't even know in our brain how that works, let alone anything else. So having this cognition, but we don't understand how it works. So it's an anomalous form of cognition. That's why I invented that term. Same thing for psychokinesis. Now, the first paper I published with that in it, uh, one of the reviewers uh, is a philosopher, and he took me to task. He just ripped me apart. How dare you change the blah, 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 blah. And I said, hey, you know, hey, uh, Stephen, Stephen uh, Rowdy is his name. I said, we're good friends. Why are you yelling at me? He said, I'm good. You should see how I yell at my colleagues. I was kind to you. That's being kind? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we changed the name one more time since then. Uh-huh. So what's the current terminology you're using? Um. We call it uh, information, informational psi. We kept the term psi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Greek Greek letter. And so yeah. it's indicated by a capital I with the Greek letter psi. Yeah. And it's in Greek, psi is the first letter of the word psuche, which means soul or life force. And when uh, psychology got started, well, you're not studying the body. We're studying the soul or something yeah. like that. It eventually transitioned to become the study of the mind. But that's where the term comes from. And so psychic phenomena in the literature is frequently denoted by the Greek letter psi. Yep, I like that part of it. And and, uh, psychology, first of all, before 1879, all kind of things were called natural philosophy. Yes. In fact, PhD stands for doctor of philosophy, no matter what discipline you get it in. Right. This was before the modern term scientist came into usage. Scientists used to be called natural philosophers. That's right. And in the the starting point of the discipline of psychology itself. Mm -hmm. So shortly by the SPR. (laughs) So um, so informational psi is the current term for what Mm -hmm. was called anomalous cognition for what is popularly called ESP. The other term you mentioned now, um, moving things or influencing things with the mind is commonly referred to as telekinesis or psychokinesis, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes abbreviated as PK for psychokinesis. And you then termed that anomalous perturbation because you're 
if you if you have telekinesis, you're perturbing something, but it's in a non-conventional or anomalous way. Exactly correct. Uh, is, is there an updated version of that term as well? <laughs> uh, I think your listeners will not like what I have to say here. Um, I'm not exist. I don't even think that it exists at all. Okay, we'll get into that. Um, in one thing that I would note for people, because I, there's another term that's out there called remote influencing, and remote influencing could be confused with telekinesis and. The advocates of remote influencing may even view it as overlapping with telekinesis, but people who my experience is that people who talk about remote influencing are more talking about the ability to influence people, not telekinetically, but like if you want someone to leave you alone, maybe you send them a leave me alone message, which could be telepathy or something like that. Um, yeah. But there's a distinction between between remote influencing and telekinesis. They're not considered to be the same thing. Yeah, I can understand that. In fact, in the early days, I put off on target SRI. Uh, they thought maybe we should call this remote sensing. But mm-hmm. there's a whole discipline of remote sensing yeah. has nothing to do with what we did. Yeah, remote sensing actually is like analyzing satellite photos and things like that. Exactly. So the basic motive in going to the initial anomalous cognition, anomalous perturbation is to kind of strip the theory mm-hmm. off of these terms like extrasensory perception, because that presupposes you're doing something with a sense, but it's not one of the conventional senses. So this was an attempt to take off some of those assumptions to let the phenomena be researched with without assuming certain things about it. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and explain this a little deeper for you. Um, first of all, a shout out for my colleague. I have a research colleague who lives in India. Uh, she's a PhD psychologist uh, named Sonali Bhattamarawa. Um, her emphasis is in uh, neuropsychology. Good, so pronunci- get- good pronunciation, by the, by the way, on that aspirated B at the beginning of her name. That's a difficult sound for Americans. Well, I've done a lot of work in Hindi, and at one time I could read Sanskrit fairly well, but long since lost. <laughs> uh, anyhow, the um, glad you recognize that. She'll be glad to know when I tell her about this. <laughs> okay, so um, so I'm going to work backwards in terms of where we are now and get back to what led us to that. Mm-hmm. Look. There's a problem space about how all this works. Part of it's in the brain or maybe you re, uh, extended consciousness or what have you about person-centric thing. People have had experiences like this forever. Another part of it is uh, what's occurring in the, in the world outside the brain. In other words, if someone in India is going to randomly generate a photograph out of a predefined collection of, say, 300 of them tomorrow... How in the world does that information get from India tomorrow to here now? Precognition. How can that possibly be? Comes right to your nose. I said, not into your brain yet or even into your nose. It's right here. How did it get from Bombay, India tomorrow to here today? That is strictly a physics problem. Physicists who might try to work that. In fact, it's not something new that we've invented. Uh, The American Institutes of Physics have been hosting um, uh, 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 
symposia on quantum retrocausation theory and experiment. In other words, how is it possible a future event like tomorrow influence today? A lot of very clever, very um, almost unreadable physics about how that might work so normal so nice nor about that normal causation proceeds forward in time so retro causation would be to cause something earlier in time that's right and, and that that would presumably be involved in precognition since you have an event in the future that yeah. you have knowledge of today somehow that information would have to travel from the future back to the past where it can have an effect right now how that happens is there's some a lot of physics speculation, both in that papers in that book and, and other stuff we can find. But Murray, Murray Gelman once remarked that unless physics absolutely forbids something to happen, then that thing is mandatory to happen. Maybe not often, but it has to happen sometime. So all the papers we have uh, found, we refer to them as plausibility arguments. But we, call, we divided up the problem space then into two chunks. Things that happen in the physical world and things that happen in the mental world. The physical world we call the physics domain. People can worry about that problem and don't give a damn about ESP or even heard about it. Whole books are written about retrocausation. And so physics people can worry about that. The neuroscience domain, what's happening inside person perspective in the head, the neuroscientists can worry about that without having to worry how the hell that data got there in the first place. So if the model that Sonali and I put together uh, may be completely wrong, but that aspect of dividing the problem space into two chunks so that experts in one field don't have to worry about the other. And traditionally, the field has gotten really sort of wrapped around the axle, if you will, because they've not been able to cleanly separate those ideas. Yeah, there's been a lot of skepticism expressed on the grounds that, well, we don't have a theory for how this would work. So that justifies skeptics in ignoring the evidence that it does work because there's the absence of a theory. Well, and uh -huh. you know about the catch 22, which is about what you're about to nose into here. We've, we've been rejected because there's no theory. And then when we write a, a theory, we say they, we get rejected because there's no data, they think. Yeah. Now, you have a paper uh, that uh, uh, you co-authored um, called Rethinking Extrasensory Perception Toward a Multiphasic Model of Precognition. And we'll have a link to that. It's a fascinating paper. And in it, you, you carve up the problem space, as you said, into these different groups. And you talk about the different uh, areas, you know, like the physics domain and the uh, neurological domain and, and the experiential side of things and so forth. So we'll have a link to that for people to uh, to read. One view that I've heard you express it concerns the state of the evidence for psychic functioning. Now, mm -hmm. when scientists do research and when parapsychologists do research, there's there are different types of it. One type is called proof oriented research, mm -hmm. where you're trying to gather evidence that proves that psychic functioning is real. And then there's what's known as process oriented research, where you're not trying to prove it's real, but you're trying to gather evidence that would reveal how the process of oh, psychic work. functioning yeah. work. Yeah. Yes. Now, uh, at this point, do you think that we need any more proof-oriented research, or should we be focusing, or should parapsychologists be focusing on process-oriented research? 
good question. And I will quote one of the leading skeptics of parapsychology research, Professor Ray Hyman. He and we are in complete agreement that there are certain categories of what is called psi that no longer need proof-oriented research. Remote viewing and Gonsfeld, random number generators, uh, probably what called uh, females, distant uh, influence over living systems. But the data is so strong there that uh, we don't need to do anymore, except when you want to do experiments in the laboratory and, and as teaching modes. The rest of it should be all process-oriented. Okay. And we'll have uh, links for people to those different types of modalities like Gonsfeld. People who listen to the program are going to be familiar, most of them, with remote viewing. Gonsfeld is kind of a sensory deprivation form of remote viewing. And we'll have links to those other modalities so they can read about those. Do you know how that arose? Because I was in on the ground floor when they were developing it. Tell, tell us. Well, it turns out there was a group at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn that had done with Stanley Krippner and um, Dream Research people to see whether you could insert remotely into someone's dream an image. And long story to that, yes, it works. In fact, the chair of the psychology department. Of so so that, wait, you're, you're saying the movie Inception is real? Yep. Well, conceptually, yeah. Um, they, the way that worked is um, there was a big pain in the tail. Uh, the researcher, someone would come, a volunteer, they, they'd put in a soundproof chamber with electromagnetic shielding and so on in there. And in the Gonsfeld, they put you in this altered state, uh, sensory deprivation. The way they do it, it's going to sound really weird. Take a ping pong ball and cut it in half, glue it over your eyes <laughs> and have earphones on. And what you hear in your earphones is white noise. And what you see if you gaze around with your eyes is just a uniform red um, background. Because they shine a red light on your face and you got the ping pong balls over your That's eyes. It. Now, uh, I mentioned earlier um, that one of the issues is that our, all of our sensory systems are more sensitive to things that are changing compared to when that same thing is not changing. You know, that's why you've got blinking lights on cop cars <laughs> and so on. All right. So what happens to you, and, and it's bizarre, and I've had this experience, you're, you're in the Gonsfeld in a, in a comfortable chair and there's lights in your face and you look around with your eyes and all you see is this red thing. And after a certain period of time, it's different for every person, you do not know, you do not see redness at all. Your brain says, oh, there's nothing interesting changing here. We're shutting down. Even though your eyes are open, you know darn well your eyes are open, but you do not experience red. Wow. Yeah. Same thing in your ears. White noise, patternless white noise in your ears. I know I'm listening. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a dark, silent space. And then from there you say, what perceptions can I pick up on that yeah, may be exactly. your psychic nature? So when someone's been sort of cooking in there for a while, the way the experiment would work, a uh, signal would be sent down the hall to someone. And if you remember in the old days, they had what are called view masters. Yes. That you hold them up in the three dimension, you click through it in the, the same theme through all the images you saw. Yeah. Prim they would pr primitive zero G form of virtual reality headsets. Exactly. So what they, what they would do is they would ran, uh, randomly pick just one of those because you dream multiple times in the night. Every time uh, the researcher would see the dreamers in REM, REM state, they would know they were dreaming. 
signal would go down the hall and the guy would try to project in their head what they're looking at into that person's dream. That was the idea. Okay. And then when the REM was, was uh, finished, they'd wake up the poor dreamer and say, oh, please tell us what we're dreaming about and go back to sleep. This would go seven or eight times through the night. There's a giant pain in the butt because everybody had to stay up all night, but the lucky dreamer got to sleep, right? And that worked beautifully well. Um, that uh, there was an analysis done by the chair of the um, uh, psychology department at, at uh, Yale University, Irvin Child. And he wrote a book in American psychology, uh, a paper in American psychologists praising that work. Thought it was no question real. I thought that was pretty interesting. Wow. But, but Chuck said, Chuck Connerton, who is the, the, one of the main developers of the Gosfeld, he said, you know, I hate staying up all night. And besides which, we can only get one data point a day. It's a big pain in the tail. What is, what is unique about this? Well, it's an altered state. Okay, um, and in the dream research, they were saying it's an altered state. Well, what all? What, what, what is more easily uh, an altered state beside dreaming? So let's put somebody in an altered state, which you can get them there in thirty minutes or less. And in, in a space of two hours, you can collect data, bring somebody else, so you can have five data points in one day. That was the origin of the Gonspell. Okay, interesting. I hadn't known that. I've I've read about Gonsfeld, but I haven't gone deep into it yet. But I will be uh, doing more research and talking about it more on the future of the show. One thing that uh, we talked about, at least briefly in our previous discussion, was skepticism regarding psychic functioning on the grounds that it doesn't always work. Now, it, previous listeners to the show will know that in the way I've tried to articulate what psychic phenomena are supposed to be are essentially weak, natural human abilities. So they're built into human nature. If they exist, they're part of human nature. You're not appealing to angels or demons or anything like that. It's something humans can do. But yep. since since it's not part of our normal experience, it's obviously weak and it wouldn't it wouldn't work all the time. I kind of compare it to like our sense of smell. Our sense of smell is a real sense. It's part of human nature, but it's weak. It's nowhere good as a dog's. You know, dogs, yeah, dogs can be bloodhounds. They can smell things humans could never smell as precisely. We just have this kind of vague sense of smell. And I kind of analogize that to how psychic phenomena would work. It'd be kind of like our sense of smell. Um, what do you think the public should be aware of in terms of the reliability and the effect size of okay. psychic function? Okay, uh, you're on the right track, but you're um, missing some major points here. Okay. In every single human skill set, I don't care what it is, running a, a, a four-minute mile or swimming or painting or whatever the human skill set is, there is a kind of bell-shaped curve of skill in that discipline, whatever it is, all right? So they're in the right-hand end of that tail in that bell-shaped curve, there are real experts, you know, somebody who routinely can run four-minute miles. And then there are people like me, I can run 400-minute miles, no problem, <laughs> at the other end of the scale, all right? And so I'm lazy, and my colleagues and I are real lazy. If we don't have to invent something new, let's go with what we've got until it runs out of being useful. That is, ESP skills, size skills, is also a bell-shaped curve, 
And there are people that, in fact, we have a new name for them, unfortunately. I hate this name. I didn't invent it. Called Black Belters. They're the, they are the good guys who are in the four-minute mile category in psychic space. And they virtually never, never fail with quotes. One of those is Joe McMonagall. Uh, I have, what, maybe almost 30 years of data with this guy. And uh, we use, um, I have to get a little technical with you here. Uh, we have what's called within run controls. We don't have control populations. We say, okay, here's a target that you have to describe in your remote viewing. So how do we know you did that compared to chance? The answer is, well, we had four other targets that could be, and it was one selected out, and then we can compare to see whether or not uh, there's, you'd get it right 25% or 20% of the time. If a 20% chance of getting one um, you know, correct, if, uh, if you guess correctly by which of the, it's like guessing which of a five-sided die comes up if mm -hmm. a 20% chance of getting it right, all right? So to make sure I and the listeners understand, you'll have a set of five targets mm -hmm. and you'll ask Joe to describe one. Joe's one of the former Defense Department remote viewers who also worked on the civilian side. And one of those targets has been chosen as the target. And, and so one of the five is chosen as the target. It's his job to describe that one. If yeah. this were just random chance, you would expect Joe to be able to describe the right target 20% of the time or one fifth of the time since there are five targets. But in fact, he describes it more often than 20%. Want to know the number? Please. What are you offering? Pay? I mean, uh, <laughs> I can be bribed. I'm offering fame. That's what I oh. have to offer as a podcast. Forget it. I quit. <laughs> no, the answer there, seriously, uh, he's running over, I don't remember the exact number, certainly in the thousands of remote viewings I've done with him, uh, about 44% of the time he gets it right. Okay. So, and he's considered a black belt, so yeah. it's not 100% even with him, but it's significantly beyond chance. Yeah. And another way to look at it in a negative point of view, 56% of the time he blows it. <laughs> <laughs> um. So in terms of overall reliability, we've kind of covered that. What about effect size? I mean, people imagine with psychic functioning being able to like retrieve incredible detail about a future event or if, if we're talking telekinesis, which I know you're a skeptic of and we'll get to that, you know, being able to levitate a human being and fly around the room. Those would be really big effects. What does the evidence you have studied suggest about the size of the effect? Well, the, the California uh, mobile phone system is a terrible way of getting information about anything. It sucks big time. Mm -hmm. ESP is worse. Okay. So it's like a low bandwidth phone system that is, or a low bandwidth phone system would even be better in terms of the amount of bits of information you can get. Okay. As long as you've gotten there, I can get a little mm -hmm. geeky also. Please. We have a very crude, and I have to emphasize crude, and I'll explain what I mean by that, estimate of what the bit rate actually is in remote viewing. Oh, I was hoping you'd go here. What is it? Well, it's if you want, I'll, I'll word it in in experiential terms. Suppose you wanted to get the um, six two digit numbers to win the the Powerball lottery. Okay, six two digit numbers uh, by using your ESP to do that. All right, it would require you to have fifty straight hours of being of being psychic to get those numbers. 
That would explain why remote viewers don't win Powerball more often. Exactly right. And I'm serious about this. Yeah. Yeah, I am, too. Uh, I know there are projects where people have, like, made money with the stock market and things, but it involves an enormous time investment. And many remote viewers have concluded it's not worth my time. I have better things to do with my life than try to do this. But nobody can sit and be psychic for 50 minutes, for 50 minutes, let alone 50 hours. In fact, it raises a really interesting question on the research here. Um, it's kind of an amusing story. I like amusing stories. Uh, I was ready to retire from the Parapsychological Association. I don't know if your listeners know what that is. Uh, the Parapsychological Association, I think, was founded in 1957, and the head of the American Society, uh, the American Association of Advancement of Science, was a real famous anthropologist, Margaret Mead. Oh yes, quite a character. Quite a character. And she insisted that the PA, Parapsychological Association, become an affiliate member of the AAAS. And that's how we got into the AAAS. So that's an interesting story. Okay, so um, it turns out that um, I've lost my train of thinking. Can you remind me? You were, you were uh, telling me about uh, funding and like playing the stock market in order to acquire oh, it. Yes, yes, yes. Well, one of the things that that is, oh, in terms of bitrate, we're still on the yeah. bitrate business. The fact is that um, our, our measures are rather crude. Uh, if people have an experience, oh, I, I'm ahead of my game. All right, now I'll get back. Uh, Dean Radin wanted. I told Dean I want to retire from the from the PA. And he said, "What can I What can I uh, do to uh, convince you to to bribe you to stay in another year?" And so what are you offering? Dean Radin is another parapsychologist, very yes. well known. He was president of the Parapsychological Association at the time. And I, he, I said, what are you offering? He says, how about if I give you the Career Achievement Award? Oh, okay. That plus $5 gets me coffee at Starbucks, but leave that aside. Mm -hmm. So uh, I said, fair enough, I'll take the Career Achievement Award. And the, and the, the idea is in the following year for the convention, the Parapsychological Association Convention, the person who was given the Career Achievement Award gets to write, give an invited talk about their careers. So I tend to be an irascible son of a and so they, I got up at the podium and I said, uh, well, you all know about my fabulous career and what I've contributed. I walked to the front of the stage, and I'm not joking, put my hands on my hips, and I said, now let me tell you what's wrong with you. <laughs> and I shredded them, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're going to tar and feather me. Part of the, the serious part of what I had to say was this. Why is it that we are a bunch of amateurs, and I include myself in that, that I should not be taking uh, do ESP experiments measuring body functions, autonomic nervous systems. I'm a physicist. What do I know about skin conductance? Nothing. But I have to do it anyway. Same with you, psychologists. So yeah. then, what I what I said was, and I have this talk that I gave has been sanitized because that was pretty grumpy um, and published now. But I said, look. Um, I've read it. It has been sanitized. Yes, it has. <laughs> there are three things we don't know about Psy right now. And unless and until we can really understand these three things, then we're not going to make progress on how this stuff works. It's a major challenge we need to think about. And that they're still true today. That is, we don't know. Uh, um, all of our definitions are negative. ESP is what happens when nothing else should happen or didn't happen. And we all spend lots of money to make sure that nothing else did happen. 
and we design protocols that way. Same with psychokinesis. It gets very expensive to, to guarantee that whatever happened in front of you didn't happen by, quote, normal means, because there is no definition of these terms. I don't have any idea what remote viewing is. I know an awful lot about what it isn't, and that's a huge challenge. Second thing, and associated with that is, how long does it last when you... Well, first of all, back up. If we humans have access to all space and all time by precognition and we're cognitively aware of it, let me use a technical psychiatric term, you'd go bogus loony in a heartbeat. We all censor, we all uh, are... In, uh, are relevant focused in our conversation. I can be with you at a crowded restaurant and all kinds of stuff are happening. Maybe somebody drops a, a, a tray of dishes and we all look over there for a minute and then we get back to our conversation. What we're doing is editing out all that background stuff, which is not relevant to our conversation. So I'm thinking that there has to be, and we have no idea how this happens, what opens our consciousness, our awareness to this vast array, some infinite amount of inf information over time, what opens our access to that and what closes that access? And when does that happen? We have no idea. And here's one of the problems. We did a detailed study, just as an exemplar, and it's not just this one experiment. We did a, a detailed study involving uh, EEG and what have you at Stanford in the, in, the, in, the in the psychology department there. Studying brainwaves. Studying brainwaves, exactly. And the problem is, the participant, Joe McMonagle, say, would come to the lab, and he's parking his car, and he has no control over this. All the ESP part of what's going to happen to him in his immediate future has already just happened to him in the car. He gets in, we wire him up with all the CEG. It's too late. <laughs> we can't measure anything because he's not being psychic while he's sitting in the research chair. That is a serious problem. I gave back once $150,000 to a funder to uh, looking at some experiments in an MRI machine in, in Edinburgh. And I said, I don't know when to put somebody in there. Hmm. By the time we put him in there, it's all over. It's a waste of money. Let's reprogram the cash. That is a serious problem none of us have any idea about. Third one is how long does it last? Do you get... You know, do we have 50 straight hours of uh, 50 straight hours to be psychic or when you're doing a remote viewing, uh, is it burst in one second intervals or millisecond intervals or microsecond interval? We have no idea. And until we know that we're wasting our time with various hardwares. For example, if you want to see psychic functioning in an fMRI machine, those things work with the movement of blood in your brain. And that's very slow. So if it's if it happens anything faster than 10 seconds, it, we will not see it. So these are real fundamental questions that we do not know yet know the answers to. And even in my own research right now, it's a big pain because you don't know. First of all, the second problem is, 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 is the experimenter's ESP or the subject's ESP? Right. This is something that not a lot of people are aware of, but this is a real discussion in parapsychology. Yeah. How do you know whether it's the test subjects that are being psychic or whether it's the experimenters that are testing them that yeah. are being psychic? For example, um, suppose I'm a parapsychologist and I am going to run a test on, say, 10 people to see if they have psychic functioning. And it so happens none of these people are psychic at all. 
But if I, the experimenter, am a psychic, I might pick the ones who will be right just by random chance without realizing it, in which case my experiment is not showing that they're psychic. All it's showing is that psychic functioning exists, but it could be either me or them. Or both. Or both. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Um, uh, a, the, a late psychologist from New York University, uh, Mar- or Gertrude Schmeidler, invented a term sheep goats. Yeah. Sheep, sheep get good experiments. Goats do not. And uh, there are two well-known researchers in our field. Dean Radin, which you mentioned earlier, is one and I'm another that anything we touch turns to gold. It's hard for us not to get to, to fail an experiment, literally. Now, there are other people, my dear friend Richard Broughton in Europe, he cannot do a successful experiment if it bit him in the rear end. And yet he's, you know, the, and people have studied this phenomenon. Richard Wiseman, a well-known skeptic, um, cannot get good results no matter what. And he's a charming, outgoing, lovely man. You'd like to have him over for dinner. He's not a grumpy old guy. <laughs> and yet, there's just some aspect, and we do not understand why this is the case. Um, it may be that you know research participants, subjects are never psychic, and it's always experimenter. I don't think that's the case, but I worry about that in my own research. I'll give you one example. Uh, I did a skin conductance experiment. The idea is, look, uh, it's well known, well studied, and written about in books and what have you. We humans are wonderful at having experiences. I mean, fantastic. We all love our internal world of experiential stuff. The problem is we're perfectly dreadful of describing what that experience is. Uh, in fact, there are two, two uh, disciplines that, are, that are, use this fact. One is magicians. You think you know what's going on, but it's not. But a more important one is a therapist. Suppose you're my therapist. I say, Jimmy, I just met the woman of my life. She's brilliant. She's smart. She's good looking, clever, uh, just a great woman. And you say to me, Ed, when are you going to understand you hate your mother? <laughs> so we, the whole industry of, of counseling psychology is based in part, at least, of misinterpreting our internal experiences or what they are. And how to correct those interpretations. Exactly right. So there's been this emphasis in relatively modern parapsychology. If we could get to get to a point where I can measure what your body is doing rather than what your mind is doing. Uh, Jimmy, thanks for coming to the lab today. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> we are not interested in what you think is going on. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. And sure enough, it looks like uh, you could measure skin conductance. We did a very careful experiment, got an astounding result. Uh, what we did was just briefly, um, we measure skin conductance. If you get nervous, what happens? You get sweaty hands. All right. And so you can measure the sweat in your hands by some very clever technology. It changes the electrical conductance. And that's one of the one of the things that are that's done with polygraphs or lie detectors. Exactly right. But we we monitor this part of your your farm uh, palm. And so what we would do in our experiment and there are others similar uh, in a space of about uh, 20 seconds, you would be given either one second of very loud white noise in your ears, really scare the hell out of you, mm-hmm. or a marker that would have been sound, but it was randomly chosen to have, have nothing there. 
And so we want to look at a, a region about three and a half seconds before that decision is made, whether you get sound or silence. Is there any activity before that? Because the only way there would be significant activity before that would be psychic. And this is under the decision is under uh, of whether you hear the sound or not is under the control of a computer. Random, so it's yeah. not even a human that's deciding that the machine, Definitely. the machine has not made the decision. And yet you would find that people would react before they got the disturbing noise. Yeah, we call it pre-stimulus response. <laughs> and we got a Spider-Man uh, has that. That's right. I wish do you have his, do you have his contact information. I could. <laughs> I think he's with the Daily Bugle. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Um, we had a five standard deviation, which is off the charts statistically for our result. Yeah. For people, uh, so that's sometimes called a five sigma result. And um, if you think about a bell curve. You have, the, the you have the two <laughs> tails um, and in typically it, or one of the benchmarks that's used in a lot of modern statistics is if the significance, it's called the p-value, but if the p-value or probability of something is less than 5% less than a one in 20 chance, then it's considered a significant finding. And that is uh, sigma th 1.65. Yeah. And then if you if you have a five sigma result, it is vastly, vastly, vastly like one in the millions. And five sigma results are considered the gold standard for this is definitely very significant. There is nothing in physics. Of they do. In, yeah. And you got those kind of those kind of results. Yes, we did. Now that's the good news. What's the, the bad, bad news? news? It was an experimenter. Oh, I can prove it. How so? Well, but there's arithmetic we can prove it. But uh, we did a study down in Hungary and published that in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. And what what we did there, uh, just to word it in. Uh, not technical terms. Uh, if if at this point in time is when the decision is made whether you're getting sound or silence, and we have this three and a half second period in there, we ask how many times in that period is there a bump? In other words, a, a, a skin conductance bump. And so we can compute bump rate, the bump rate before future sound, the bump rate before future silence. Now, if this was really the way we'd like it to be, the bump rate before silence would be significantly larger than the bump rate before controls. I mean, that's what's actually happening. You're looking into the future and getting shocked before it happens, right? And we had a third bump rate that is far away from any stimulus at all to get sort of the background bump rate. Now, if our cherished hypothesis was right, that it's the autonomic nervous system making you psychic, if that were true, the bump rate before sound would be statistically larger than the bump rate before silence, and the bump rate before silence would be statistically equivalent to the background bump rate. Wrong. That's not what we found. What did you find? Oh, this is really disgusting. Uh, that is, the bump rate before sound was statistically equivalent to the bump rate before and uh, to the background bump rate and the bump rate before controls was suppressed below the background bump rate oh 
Now, yeah. the only way that, that can happen, that we, you know, we've got whole books on psychophysiology existing this way. There's no known way in the whole world of psychophysiology that people can control their natural bump rates in skin conductance. The only way that can happen is experimenting, pressing the button to avoid those things. It's an experimenter effect. Okay. <laughs> and that gets us into the experimenter effect gets because experimenters are not trying to do this. They're not no. trying to use their own psychic abilities to influence this. And this gets us into a, uh, the beginning of a topic we'll talk more about in a little bit. It's sometimes called implicit psi or uh, the super psi hypothesis. Sometimes it's called decision augmentation theory. That's a term you've used. And the basic idea is that people, including experimenters, are actually using psychic functioning regularly as part of their experience without realizing it. And they may so, be able to. It depends where they are on the Bell-Shaw curve, whether yeah. it actually matters one way or another. But if it turned out that you or Dean Radin are psychically functioning without realizing it as experimenters, you could pick the right test subjects or yep. whatever in experiments, whereas someone at the other end of the spectrum might not be able to. Yep. Okay. Let me give you, give you an example. I was doing a, a, a skin conductance study at the um, at, um, University of Northampton in the UK. So I went to the head of the department, a woman named Deborah Delanoy, a very smart lady. And I said, Deborah, do you mind if I pick one of your students to help us with this experiment? Well, what do you have in mind? Well, there's the lab right across the hall from your office and the computer set up. I want her, this student I pick, to come and just hit the return key on the, on the computer and go away. What that's going to do is going to access the computer's random number generator and decide how the protocol is going to work for the experiment. And she said, okay, do that, and I'll pay them 10 quid, 10, 10 pounds for that simple task. So I went out in the hall during one of the breaks and all these people, and there is an attractive young woman. <laughs> and I walked up to her and I said, hey, how would you like to earn 10 quid for doing nothing? Really? <laughs> what do you mean? So I brought her into the lab, and I said, look, I would like you to come into this lab anytime. This is like 11 in the morning. Anytime between noon and 3 o'clock, your choice. Come in here, and all you do is hit the return key and leave. And here's your 10 quid. Well, can I know what the experiment is about? I said, no. Okay, that's pretty cool. And the experiment worked. The question then is, how come I picked that gorgeous young woman compared to the gorgeous young guy? If I picked him, it wouldn't work. I might have used my own subconscious ESP to pick someone who had hit that button at just the right time. Okay. And, I, and now, the in one hand, it's unfalsifiable. On the other hand, a model that my colleagues and I put together, which you've mentioned, called decision augmentation theory, uh, it is testable. One of the few things you learn in statistics, you can't separate out causality from correlation. Well, yeah, you can to do it right. And that decision augmentation will allow you to answer the question, is it, the, is it a, a causal relationship or is it an informational relationship? And we can tell the difference. Okay. Um, one of the views, now I mentioned we're going to be talking about some of your views that are not exactly typical of what a lot of people in <laughs> parapsychology. Yeah. Um, one of them is you're a materialist. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. I didn't start that way. I'm data driven. Um, 
I had an argument uh, that I, I should clarify materialism, meaning you think that psychic functioning can be explained like other phenomena in nature, strictly in terms of natural phenomena like matter and energy and not you wouldn't see psychic functioning, for example, as evidence that there's a soul, an immaterial soul that's, that's different right. than the body. Another way of looking at it uh, is the open question, which is hotly debated in philosophical circles these days. Um, is consciousness an emergent property of the brain, or does it extend beyond that? And so almost all let me let me give sort of for the listener um, an emergent property, as Dr. May says, is one that comes out of some lower phenomena. For example, if you think about your shirt, your shirt is a particular color. Like right now, I'm wearing a purple shirt. But if you zoomed into the molecular level, the atoms are not purple. What happens is when you have this arrangement of atoms, it reflects light that is in the purple part of the visible light spectrum. And so purpleness is an emergent property coming out of the way the molecules in my shirt are arranged. And the proposal here is that consciousness is something similar. Yeah, in fact, there's a, a similar analogy to get. Let's take uh, water. Water can exist in three states we're familiar with. Ice, liquid and steam gas, right? And what is water made out of? The simple molecule, two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen. And in all those three states, it's the same molecule, just like you said. And it's the arrangement of how they're distributed. If, they're, if it's ice, they're all lined up in neat little rows. If it's water, they're kind of babbling around, but it's liquid. And if it's steam, they're really babbling around much, much more so. So those are emergent properties of water that have nothing to do with the underlying uh, um, underlying molecules. Now, in the brain, we have a huge number of neurons. And so the people that buy this story say it's an emergent property and consciousness is not contained in any single neuron. It is an emerging, it's emerging in the same way from this large collection of neurons we have in our head. Now, there are lots of very smart people that disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Right. There are people who are dualists and who will say there is something in addition to the physical body that's needed here. Recently, I was um, reading an article, not from a religious person at all, from what I could tell, but a, a psychologist who was suggesting that our brain is actually a transducer of, uh, of, of some realm that goes beyond the simply physical. But you happen to be a materialist, and so you see psychic functioning in material terms. Yes. Uh, there's a, a beautiful example. Um, um, let's see. Uh, Sir Arthur, um, let's see. I'm blocking on the name, won the Nobel Prize for his work in, in psychology. Um, I'm forgetting his name. But he uh, was remarked, and his colleagues said, well, he's gotten too old, got crazy. He remarked is, if you think consciousness resides in the brain, said he, then you don't know your neural anatomy, end quote. Mm -hmm. And he won, the no he won the Nobel Prize and, and was knighted by the Queen of England. Mm -hmm. His name will pop in later. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, right. Anyhow, so that is a very famous guy that holds that different viewpoint. My viewpoint is this. I'm lazy. I will continue down this materialist path till it begins to fail. All right, so far it hasn't. Okay. End of story. 
And I've even heard you say on occasion you'd like to be proved wrong about like survival after death and things oh, like I'd that. Love it. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Can I tell that story a little bit? Please. Um, I was invited by Indian organization, uh, the Ramakrishna Mission Institute of Culture in Kolkata, India. I have a long history with India. We can leave aside. And so I went there. I was the resident materialist among all these people. They're probably nailing me to the cross. And uh, one monk, a Ramakrishna order monk, uh, came from marketing, spoke fluent English. And he and I started holding a conversation. I said, Swamiji, I love your idea of transcendence. I love the idea of rebirth. I think that's fantastic. It's much, uh, it's much more attractive to me than my own materialist perspective. However, your ideas have come from ancient literature before we even knew about all the modern stuff we know about brains and all the modern stuff we know about genetics and all that. If you're right, and please, I sure hope you're right, please tell me how you can relate all that wisdom from ancient times. How does it explain the stuff we now know? And he says, you have a very good point. I have no idea. And we're still in dialogue on this question. Well, here's hoping your dialogue bears good fruit. <laughs> well, I'd be happy, but I don't think it's going to. Yeah. Now, I didn't start this way. I, uh-huh. I thought my argument as a dualist when I got into this field is the following. Look, in principle, I'm about to, in, I intend to wiggle my finger. All right. So what is the relationship between intent and physical action? In other words, I said, at least in principle, I could trace the neural pathways up to the motor centers and blah, 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 blah. But there's no region of the brain that anybody knows is the intent region of the brain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of my neuroscientist friends say, yeah, it still happens in the brain. It's just a collective decision issue. But before I realized that, that it's probably some external aspects that gives you the intent to do something. That's what I thought when I was a dualist. Mm -hmm. But I've been disavowed of that position. Hmm. Okay. Another view that you've expressed that's somewhat controversial in parapsychology concerns whether or not it's possible to train people, for example, in remote viewing. Um, now, there's there are people who will are very passionate about remote viewing is trainable. You've expressed skepticism regarding that. I was reading in your paper rethinking extrasensory perception towards a multiphasic model of precognition, which we'll have a link to. Uh, You and your co-author write, this model, the one you're discussing in the paper, uh, predicts that training for acquiring a precognitive ability would be ineffective, although training to use the ability effectively, as in response style, identifying and ignoring cognitive overlays, and so on, may be possible. This is similar, you say, uh, to learning how to use an instrument when one has the inherent musical ability. So it sounds like you and your co-author are saying, okay, you can't acquire the fundamental ability to to precognize, to be precognitive, but you could train people in how to use that precognitive ability effectively, like learning a musical instrument if you have the gift of hearing and things like that. that it doesn't sound to me like you're necessarily that far apart. It seems like even though you have, uh, have questioned the value of training, you still see a role for it um, or a potential role for it. That's an interesting paper, but it's a bit out of date. Uh, uh-huh. the, way we th- the way we think of it now is that 
which we talked in our earlier segment about a bell-shaped curve of every kind of human activity you can think of. All right, so we are born somehow, and we don't know why, with giftedness in some areas. Uh, there are people who are just born and become great musicians or great uh, singers or great athletes or what have you. Not everybody. You can train me forever to run a four-minute mile, and I will run it in four hours, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So th- that we can train people with its uh, uh, modification of what you mean by training. I can give you tips, train you up to the level, whatever your native skill is and not beyond. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can play okay at tennis, but you know, I will never compete at Wimbledon. I'm not, I just don't have that skill set in my, mm-hmm. in my being. And in fact, Joe McMonagle wrote a book. Um, so I have up on my shelf here, remote viewing secrets. And I don't get any money for it, but I'd recommend your viewers who want to know about remote viewing, read this book. <laughs> And what he says is exactly what I just said. He doesn't believe you can train either. And we have all the hard data. And many of those people who are advertising training are, frankly, uh, well-meaning. I'll give them that. Uh, They charge a rather substantial amount of money for their training. And they imply, although they don't actually say it, that they can turn you into Joe McMonagles overnight. Sorry, that's not going to happen. Okay. I have seen, I mean, I'm aware of some of these folks and I haven't, I haven't seen them imply you're going to come out of this as Joe McMonagall. I mean, I'm actually, some of them probably do imply that. Um, But others, others I know are, are, I think are more responsible. Yeah, I agree. But it seems to me like this is, if someone said, I mean, it seems to me that every person is typically going to have some maximum potential in a given skill. Like if I want to learn the violin, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm never going to be the Olympic violin champion of the world, whatever that person is. (laughs) Yeah. Yasha Heifetz. Good. I was trying to think of famous violinists and wasn't coming up. Um, I was coming up with composers instead of violinists. Um, But so I'm never going to be Yasha Heifetz, but I have some maximum level that's inherent in me. And I could hire a violin teacher to give me classes and train me up to that level. Absolutely. And, and it, I, I'm not sure that that's different than what a lot of remote viewing trainers are saying. Maybe now that's true, not initially. And part of that is Ingo Swan's fault. Ingo Swan thought that with his model, you could train up to whatever level you want to be. He had stages up through stage six would be like black belters, like on steroids. And so he fundamentally believed that and turned out, that wasn't true. His training procedure works for some people some of the time. Uh, we have hard data back in the Stargate era that Ingo Swan's training, in Ingo Swan's method, let's put it that way, produced almost no actionable intelligence. We have the data of what techniques were used and what, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. Is, where could people find that data if they want to research that claim? Uh, look in volume four of the Stargate archives. It's all laid out in gory detail there. Okay. And it's online. CIA publishes all that. Right. Although the CIA archives for Stargate are massive, it's kind of hard to find your way around. So it's helpful to have. That's why we publish these books. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And that's the end of today's part of our interview with Dr. Edwin May on psychic research. Jimmy, is there anything you'd like to follow up on from today's interview? 
One of the people Dr. May mentioned was a Nobel Prize winner who was knighted by the Queen of England and who has notable views about consciousness and how conventional neurological theories don't explain it. He wasn't able to remember the name of the scientist, but I said I'd see if I could find out who it was. And to the best of my ability to determine, I think he was referring to Sir Roger Penrose. He's British, a knight, a Nobel Prize winner, and he has views on consciousness that challenge commonly accepted ideas. So I think it was him. We'll have a link to where you can read more about him and his views on consciousness. So, Jimmy, what are those further resources that folks can check out before next week's second part of the interview? We'll have a link to Ed May's book, ESP Wars, East and West, which deals with the Soviet uh, psychic spying program, among other things, during the Cold War. Also, uh, we'll have a link to his author page on Amazon.com. We'll have a link to Joe McMonigle's book, Remote Viewing Secrets. Also, the Stargate Archives, Volume 4. Ed May's webpage, The Laboratories for Fundamental Research. His paper, Rethinking ESP. Also, information on remote viewing, uh, Gonsfeld ESP experiments, random number generators and psi, distant mental influence over living systems or D-mills, Viewmasters, the, uh, the toy, which also sounds like a some kind of superhero team, <laughs> and information on Joe McMonagall and Roger Penrose. So, Jimmy, what mysterious headlines do we have this week? This week, we're talking about big rocks in the sky. And the first one is the dino-killing asteroid that brought the age of the dinosaurs to a close, or at least helped bring it to a close. There may have been other factors as well. Well, uh, we'd love to know exactly when it fell. We don't know the year, unfortunately. You know, it was approximately 60 million years ago or so, but we don't know what year but we may know the month. Uh, based on recent studies, and some that actually go back away, uh, we have evidence that the dino-killing asteroid likely struck in early June. And they know that, or think they know that, because uh, different life forms go through different stages of development at different times of the year. And the life forms that are right at the layer where the asteroids strike display characteristics that they would ordinarily have in late May or June. So that kind of targets early June as the most likely time of the asteroid strike. And I find it fascinating that we can figure out after 60 million years to within probably a two week period when this happened, hmm. uh, even if we don't know the year. But, uh, you know, the dino-killing asteroid isn't the only big rock in space. Another is our sister planet, the moon. And one of the uh, things that people have known for a long time is that the moon drives tidal waves. Uh, you know, or I should say drives tides here on Earth. But it may also be driving continental drift. And, you know, there's there's been a question of, OK, we have these uh, tectonic plates on our surface. They're over a liquid, uh, liquidy mantle of molten rock. Why are they sliding around? Well, one the conventional explanation historically has been, oh, there must be convection currents, you know, of hot magma rising and falling and kind of like in a lava lamp, and that's pushing the continental plates around. But you wouldn't expect such convection to really do a lot of that. And so people have been thinking, hum, moon drags water around on the surface of the Earth. 
maybe moon drags surface of the earth around on surface of the earth. <laughs> and so you can read about this uh, proposal that the moon may be driving continental drift. Excellent. Very cool. So that's it from us. We would love to hear your theories about the psychic phenomena that Dr. May has been researching. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page or sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. You can send a tweet to at mys underscore world or call our mysterious feedback line at 619 619- 738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work that they do on Mysterious World. A lot of people have really been impressed by what they're doing. And so you can check out uh, the video version of Mysterious World at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And I'm trying to grow my channel, so I'd really appreciate it if while you're there, you uh, hit the bell notifications so that you'll be uh, alerted every time we have a new video for you. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next time, we're doing part two of our interview with Dr. May, in which we talk about his most unique views on, uh, on psychic functioning, things where he has a kind of a different take than other parapsychologists, and we'll be talking about and testing one of his key theories. I'm testing it in the sense of, you know, let's intellectually test it here. Um, and we'll also be hearing about various factors that are thought to affect psychic f- functioning, including, interestingly, the relationship between how the Earth is turned with respect to the heart of the galaxy. geomagnetic fields and also something known as entropy bombs. (laughs) Wow. Folks, remember to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter. Help get the word out about the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Goodbye, Adric. I'm I'm (laughs) sorry. I was just thinking of the dino killing asteroid. Thanks, Dom. (laughs) And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.